You're listening to a Red Bull podcast. I'm Al Grigg, and this is Red Bull's If These Walls Could Talk, a podcast about our favourite parties and the people and places that made them. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the country on which we record and honour their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. We pay our respect to their elders past and present. This season, we're revelling in memories from some of the country's best music festivals and one that holds a special place in many people's hearts, including mine as someone who has played and partied there, is Secret Garden. It has that wonderful feeling like any other camping music event where you arrive and you're setting up your tent and you're making mates with the people next door to you putting on costumes, then then the second carload of your best friends arrive and then it's a, the party start, really starts. Claire Downs started Secret Garden Festival with a couple of mates on her family's dairy farm. It grew and ran for 11 years, going out with a massive bang in 2019. And from that very first party to the final act, the vibe of the festival stayed true. From the moment you arrived at the farm, the whole Secret Garden experience was set to help you have a totally imaginative, uninhibited and playful time. A principal thing in everything we did in Secret Garden was to try and try and encourage strangers meeting and making friends. You'd set up your campsite, get to know your neighbours, put on your costume, because the whole thing, of course, was fancy dress. So as you go through the campsite, you see, like, you know, these amazing costumes and everybody with the biggest grins on their faces. Then you'd enter the festival through these little farm gates and walk through a long, winding path through a dense forest of big, beautiful pine trees. And the first thing you'd come across was an applause stage. So much like a studio stage that you'd see in, I don't know, Hey Hey It's Saturday or something, like a a studio (laughs) audience with a massive applause sign behind and punters would just go and sit on those chairs and clap in all the new arrivals to the festival. That sort of then set the tone for the two days on site of people interacting with each other and cheering each other on and then becoming friends. But I guess, look, the thing about Secret Garden, it's actually really well titled because there were so many amazing little sites to explore and hidden gems to discover. You know, you had things like cinemas, daggy house parties in there, pillow forts and rave caves hidden among the trees. Could you share some of your favourite hidden finds or hidden stages from the festival? Ooh. I mean, the rave cave was pretty funny. It was something my little brother had come up with and he said, what about if we build a box and we put a massive speaker in it and then play Darude Sandstorm <laughs> on repeat? <laughs> Genius. <laughs> and we did it. And we did it for 11 years. We got so obsessed with it. And it was quite hard to find this box. But once you were there, you'd never want to leave. <laughs> It was these moments, like accidentally stumbling upon a secret rave cave with a couple of strangers, that made Secret Garden what it was. For two days, you could just roam free around this tree-filled property looking for the unexpected, things like a Disney karaoke tent. And it was something so heartening about seeing all these grown adults, you know, with a beer in hand singing, I just want to be king or (laughs) can you feel the love tonight? (laughs) Or a makeshift house in the forest themed as Dave's house party. 
It was dressed like Dave's mum's house with, you know, a chores list on a fridge. There was an actual fridge in the house and there's a chores list for Dave. And Dave's mum's gone, you know, the whole scene was set for Dave. Dave's mum's gone away for the weekend and Dave's having a house party at his mum's. And we wanted to let people play their own music, which maybe is a bit risky, but obviously... It, yeah, it, yeah, it was risky, but obviously it worked out. So everybody was like packed into Dave's house party, and I went in there, and there was this guy like who had assumed the role of Dave, and he's like, "No, guys, get <laughs> off, get off the table. My mummy's gonna freak <laughs> when you come home. Please, guys, can you just, can you not?" <laughs> like, and then all these, all these people were coming up to him and being like, "Dave, thanks so much for having us to your house." And he's like, "Hey, no worries, like." You know, you hosted a great house party last year and... <laughs> Were you inspired by any festivals that you'd been before? Were there things you wanted to replicate at Secret Garden? I used to go to Falls Festival a lot down in Lawn and the the festival moments I would just yearn for and search for at Falls when I was sort of between 18 and 20 were the crowd moments and there was this one moment where there were guys playing frisbee and there was a changeover in the bands and this guy from the top of the natural amphitheatre flung the frisbee to the main stage and the security guard, the solemn security guard who looked very serious with his hands behind his back just sort of extended one hand and without even breaking face, grabbed the frisbee and the whole crowd just went berserk for him, like beers thrown up in the air, (laughs) like, and, you know, like as much as I loved Mm. all the bands, it was that moment that I thought, why, why can't a festival be about facilitating those moments? But there just weren't any festivals here that were built around those funny little moments in the crowd rather than the acts playing on stage. So at the age of 22, Claire set out to build one herself. So, you know, Secret Garden started with my best friend and I and he said to me, we were working in a music management company and he said one day, do you want to start a music festival with me? And I'm like, do I? I got the farm. And he was like... Let's do it! <laughs> so I said, oh, mate, I know the intern a Big Day Out. She could really help. And I just thought that was the biggest deal in the world. I was like, the intern? Are you kidding? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Three months later, uh, we sort of cobbled together what we thought was a music festival. I mean, I think it was more a glorified 21st, but we were calling it a music festival and then we sent out an email to our 300 guests who we knew all of them intimately. They're all our friends. (laughs) And uh, and we sent them an email and said it's fancy dress and then um, that ended up being the best decision ever. Did you originally envision the festival as as just a one-off thing? Was there a turning point or a moment when you knew you were going to do a second event and then eventually make it an annual thing? Yeah, I reckon like 11pm Saturday night, year one of the (laughs) festival, we were like, this is the best fun. (laughs) So they did it again. 
and a party for 350 friends turned into a two-day festival for about 6,000 people. And that goal of getting people to a festival purely for those magic little moments, it worked. Secret Garden made a point of never announcing the lineup until all the tickets had sold out, which they did every year. I'm loyal to to festival um, programmers and festival uh, creative directors. To I just trust that they're going to put on a great show, and I often don't get to bogged down on what the lineup's going to be and, you know, whether that will mean I'll buy a ticket or not. Um, so in the case of Secret Garden, we wanted to create trust with our guests, to, you know, that we will program a really fun event. And then that gave us this really amazing freedom to book whoever we wanted. And I think ultimately it made the best Secret Garden could ever be. Do you remember any of your favourite performances, like, you know, uh, musical or, or, you know, performance art sort of wise? Um, Sampa the Great was amazing. And she just continues to get more and more incredible. Uh, It was really early on in her career and even then you knew she was a star and was about to get massive. And then... uh, Betty Grumble, who is a drag clown performer, would do a show, which was incredible. True to her programming style, Claire doesn't talk about the big artists for long. Her favourite acts were lesser known, unexpected, and sometimes a bit silly. So one of my favourite performances was Cap Dopper from Heaps Gay covering Daft Punk and... Basically, every year at Secret Garden, we'd always have a cover band come up on stage and perform. And so over the years, we had Fleetwood Mac and Beatles and Elton John and Queen, like super daggy, one-hour set, and everybody just loved it. By then, you know, it was sort of 9pm slot on Saturday, everybody's properly warmed up into the festival, have made at least 30 friends. And so for our last year, we sent out a rumour at the festival just saying I think Daft Punk's playing. And because Daft Punk obviously does do that kind of thing, like show up in weird places, the rumour was out. And it started to come back to me, so I was like, yes, this is perfect. And Kat and Brooke, her partner and DJ partner, they got these incredible um, Daft Punk helmets. They looked the real, like it's not hard to look like Daft Punk, so they looked it and they came out on stage. We had the most incredible light show for them and they played uh, Daft Punk bangers and... The whole crowd melted. I think I saw about 10 people that night cry because they thought it was Daft Punk. People coming up to me just saying, how did you get Daft Punk? And I'm like, I know, I know, I know. It's so good. And it was just, it was just the best hour and a half. And then, Uh. um, and then at the end of the set, after everybody was like, I can't believe we just saw Daft Punk. This is amazing. There's like the the biggest, the main stage, the biggest crowd the main stage has ever sort of had. And then uh, in the robot kind of Daft Punk voice, it came over the 
the music and just said, their future is female. And um, Cat and Brooke <laughs> took off their helmets with their beautiful long hair and everybody just <laughs> went bananas. Oh, such a cool moment. I wonder if there's anyone out there who still thinks they saw Daft Punk at Secret Garden Festival. Maybe they missed the big, the big unmasking. Do you feel like selling the experience over, say, the lineup changed the kind of crowd the festival attracted? Yeah, I think so. Like everybody who came to Secret Garden were pretty die-hard, loyal Secret Garden punters and because everybody was there for the event, they were so open to every experience. And this is one of the things I really loved about Secret Garden was showcasing new genres of music or new um, new types of performance art that people otherwise might not ever see or, you know, would ever think to attend or didn't even know that it existed and suddenly, you know, they were in the front front seat watching their first drag show performance. You know, there was a lot of people who went into Camp Queen, which was a really, um, it was one of the icons of Secret Garden, a stage um, with this amazing drag queen lineup. And there were people there that were definitely seeing drag for the first time and just the delight on their faces was heaven. If you were ever lucky enough to go to Secret Garden, you'll know this Camp Queen stage was huge. Just picture a heaving party of non-stop incredible drag performances on a tennis court that had been turned into a motel or an epic nightclub. And the whole thing was programmed and built by local creatives. You know, particularly because I started it when I was 22, I didn't know what I was doing. And so it very organically, it came from a place where we're all equals, all trying to figure out how the hell we put on an event. And every year it was the same team, like, and it just grew. Um, Not many people ever left the team in its 11 year history. And from the team being the heart of the festival, very easy to translate that feeling and energy into, into the event. I think even really affected the attitude of the bands themselves because they just felt like there was no real ego there. You know, you were, even though you, you were there to perform, you kind of, you didn't feel like you were the centre of it at all. It was it just sort of, I don't know, everyone was kind of there on, in, on equal footing. It was really special. Oh, yeah, that's lovely. And especially, I guess, when, you know, the band's dressed up too, you're all, you can't take yourself too seriously. The band costumes are cool. so amazing. <laughs> it's so good. You did talk a little bit about why you decided to start the festival, and but there was also maybe another uh, reason beyond just wanting to throw a party with your friends. You kind of used it to raise um, some money from another friend? Yeah, so a good friend of mine that I went to primary school with at age 18 got meningococcal and she lost her leg and her fingers off one hand, her other arm like was in hospital in a bubble for about a year ultimately very sick and has been battling ever since so yeah we raised money for her everybody rallied behind um behind uh the cause Mm. but 
of course, we didn't really raise any money in that first year. And so Matt and I, (laughs) who had volunteered, were like, we can't finish this festival and say, oh, and by the way, we didn't raise any money. So we each, um, we were pretty skint at the time, so we borrowed 5K off our parents (laughs) and gave it to charity. And then the following year, (laughs) we started then properly raising money for charity. And, uh, And then, yeah, by the 11th, we, I think we ended up raising about half a million so we got there in the wow. end. <laughs> That's phenomenal. And was it always for the same charity or did you raise money for different charities? We raised money for different charities. So the team of creatives, 150 creatives that, you know, were the the life and soul of the event. So it seemed appropriate that they got to choose which charities we give money to given that it was their time they were giving up. Claire saw the volunteers working on the festival as the life and soul of the event. And to make sure they brought that energy to the festival, she'd treat the week leading up to it as a big party in itself. One of my best mates, he headed up the crew catering for everyone. And then after that, we would have open mic night. And so it had just turned into the biggest party. I mean, I didn't get to stay late because... I had to be responsible, but they would they would stay up until like 3 a.m., 5 a.m. every night, all week, and then have a festival to face at the end of it. On the open mic night, my, uh, my dad and my brother, every year it was tradition that they would get up and recite a bush poem. Claire's dad and her brother opening the production week with bush poetry did set a tone. Even as musicians and ticket holders, you could feel you were visiting someone's farm. And Claire's whole family were involved, from building the festival, to partying with drag queens on the family tennis court, and of course, the massive clean-up when everyone left. So in the first few years, the festival usually wrapped up with Dad on the tractor pulling people out of the boggy paddock because we were hit with a lot of rainy years, or mum, this was before we realised that you never serve bottled beer at festivals and you only serve cans, and mum with a spoon on her hands and knees plucking all the bottle caps out of the mud. Can you share some of your favourite moments of your family sort of getting into the party spirit at Secret Garden? I hear your dad had quite a bit of fun at the Camp Queen stage one year. Yeah, I think um, so. Matt Format, who is a wonderful human being and incredible performer, he called Dad up on stage for a dance, which was amazing. Dad's a dairy farmer. He's lived here his entire life and to see him on yeah. on the family tennis court, you know, where I bet his, you know, my grandfather was, you know, super strict about Dad's serve and it was all very posh and very conservative to see Dad just bumping and grinding with drag queens on the same tennis court was a joyous moment. <laughs> Going back to the festival, how did you go about making sure it was a safe and inclusive space? 
Um, we didn't hero yeah. fist-pumping jerks. Um, they weren't anywhere on our stages. And, you know, of course, a couple of dickheads always come into a festival, but it's almost like the steam was taken out of them because because of what was on our stages. So that was always the first place to start. And then the other thing was um, our messaging. You know, we were pretty clear about the kind of behaviour we encourage and the kind of behaviour we discourage. And because they're buying, buying into our event, generally we found that people were pretty obedient. Claire says that the fancy dress thing just came as an idea for that very first party and one that stuck around. But what she and the Secret Garden team would learn is that the way we dress can actually change the way that people behave. And in the case of Secret Garden, when that dress code was fun, imaginative and playful, it helped people make friends and get in the spirit of the festival. As soon as you put on that costume, you know, it's like you can never punch a guy in a banana costume, you know? Like, it's, it just immediately creates such a happy, don't take myself too seriously, let's have fun and let's be silly. Because that is one of the things I still remember vividly about playing at the festival and looking out into the crowd and literally everybody was so dressed up and it was sort of this like mad, surreal kind of experience like playing to this sea of characters, you know, Luigi's out there, E.T.'s in a bike basket, there's possibly a unicorn roaming around. Uh, what are some of the most incredible costumes you remember seeing? Oh, there was a really awesome one last year. And, and it sort of, it was a, a sorry, not last year, our last year. Um, and mm. it, this costume was amazing because it was funny, but then also it embodied everything that was Secret Garden. And then also it created a really Secret Garden moment. So basically it was a guy dressed up as the hosted deal or no deal. And then he had <laughs> all the, um, what are they called? The suitcase girls? There was probably about 15 of them, um, boys and girls, all dressed in the little red dress with the suitcase. And the suitcase <laughs> were all pizza boxes. And basically they ran around the festival uh, going up to people and saying, deal or no deal, and then people get to play. <laughs> and in the boxes you had to do, like you sort of had a challenge. And uh, so, so secret garden, you know, like interactive, <laughs> so silly, you know, don't take yourself too seriously. And then there was something going on on the main stage and the MC of the main stage was like, oh, guys, sorry, I'm just watching this deal or no deal thing <laughs> happening off the stage here. Guys, do you just want to come up? And then they were all called up on stage to do Deal or No Deal and all our programming for the next 15 minutes was scrapped so these Deal or No Deal guys could, could have their moment. It was so good. You know, there was one girl who dressed uh, as an officer, like a sort of security guard officer, and she had a little box that hung around her neck and she was an insecurity guard. And so people would write, like, their insecurity and pop it in her um, little box and, and, you know, let go of their insecurities, which is pretty oh, cute. So, that's... yeah, they, those ones were always my favourite, the ones that interacted with, with other guests of the festival. 
perhaps somewhat fortuitously given the times, although very sadly for anyone who loved going to Secret Garden, Claire made the decision to end the festival in its 11th year in 2019. And it went out with an intergalactic space party themed bang. I asked Claire to talk me through the thought process that led to the decision to call it a day. It was so good at the by the end, you know, it was a steep learning curve in the first 5 years and then by the f- for the following 6 it was it was it just got better and better until for the last sort of few years in my opinion was peak, you know, we couldn't have we couldn't have made it any better. It was so heartbreaking for all of us to say goodbye, but obviously everybody knew that that was the best decision for the event and for all of us, rather than see it sort of dwindle off into oblivion. And as part of the many lovely things we did in the wrap-up of the event, my brother bought 49 Manchurian pear trees, uh, I don't know why I stopped at 49, but there's no significance in the 49. But um, And we planted them on the secret garden site so the site will never be farmed or turned over to cattle, which sort of, Mm. you know, is very tempting for all the farmers on this farm. But he locked it down for us and for secret garden and planted all these trees so it's forever it's going to be forever secret oh, garden. I love that. Forever hallowed ground. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Which I, I was like, is <laughs> that what you mean? Or are you just trying to say never, ever, ever do secret garden again? See, there are trees in the way. <laughs> <laughs> are you still in touch with the other volunteers? Or are all the volunteers still in touch with each other? Have those relationships sort of endured beyond the end of the festival? Well, that was a lovely thing about Secret Garden was connecting people, whether it's just the punters, like how lovely that some people, you know, met at Secret Garden and then go on to get married, which many did. But also in the team there are best friendships made, business partners connected, um, lovers, uh, marriages, like it's, um, yeah, kids because... It, it uh, attracted like-minded people um, and it was, it was such a perfect little environment a bit for, for creating friendship or, or falling in love. For a final question, I asked Claire what she thinks the legacy of Secret Garden is. I think what it, its legacy is that being playful and being a big kid is really good for the soul. It seriously is. Secret Garden changed the way people thought about music festivals and the impact it had on small boutique, arts and music festivals would be felt throughout the country. Next episode, I'll be chatting with Tara Medina, the co-founder and director of Strawberry Fields, about how the doof scene has changed over the past 20 years and how the festival has evolved with it. I'm Al Greek. This is If These Walls Could Talk, a Red Bull podcast. Subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. For more stories from the world of Red Bull, head to redbull.com slash if these walls could talk. <laughs>